As far as Jimmy's concerned, all that's left is for him to sign this agreement letter. Once that's done, we can disperse his share of the estate. Let me guess. Four thousand? Five. It's what you give when you want to cut someone out of a will but not have it contested. Just enough money to show the recipient wasn't forgotten. Chuck also left a substantial endowment for a scholarship for deserving youth. I was hoping Jimmy would agree to serve on the board. I'll let him know. What else? Well, Chuck left Jimmy a personal letter. His eyes only. Howard, thank you for everything that you've done. I know it's been difficult. It's hard on all of us. Well, I don't want to keep you. Let me walk you out. Actually, Howard, we have a few more things to discuss. Uh, Kim, please give Jimmy my best. I will. It was very nice seeing you, Rebecca. You too. Safe travels. Kim? I just, uh, I just had to know. What were you thinking? About? What were you thinking when you came to Jimmy on the day of his brother's funeral and laid that shit on him? That Chuck killed himself? What's wrong with you? I, I thought... <clears throat> I thought I owed it to Jimmy to tell him. Owed it to him? Did you owe it to Rebecca? You tell her your theory? That Chuck intentionally set himself on fire? I guess not. I guess you just saved that one for Jimmy. Kim... I didn't do it to hurt Jimmy. No, you did it to make yourself feel better. That, uh, that's not what I was trying to do. To make yourself feel better by unloading your guilt. Who cares what it does to Jimmy, right? As long as Howard Hamlin is okay. Kim, I, I don't think that's fair. Fair? Let's talk about fair. Hey, let's let Jimmy dig around the fire-damaged wreck where his brother died screaming. And then let's let him pick up a keepsake or two. That is so, so fair. And did I hear you right? You want him to serve on the board of a scholarship committee? A scholarship that Chuck never in a million years would have given to Jimmy. Never! It is just, I mean, oh, what's this too, huh, Howard? What's in this? One last screw you, little brother, from beyond the grave? Am I really supposed to do this to him? All right, Kim. What can I do to make it better? This scene from season four is one of the many times I started taking notice of Ray Seahorn as Kim Wexler. And she is an interesting character, basically has her own character arc going from by the book lawyer to Slip and Kimmy. And it's just such a fascinating counterpart to Jimmy that I kind of saved this for the last because who knew that Better Call Saul would be kind of a love story and to be a tragic one and to have a partner that is more than equal to Saul Goodman. 
I think the best way to cover a character is probably the, through another video essay. This time we're going to take another one from the YouTube channel, One Take. When it comes to morality, Kim has never had a whole lot to say. You might say, come on Gil, she's objected many times to Slippin' Jimmy's antics. You'd be right. But if you go back to those moments, her objections are rarely on moral grounds. More often than not, her primary concern is getting caught. In season two, for example, she learns Jimmy fabricated evidence by filming Daniel Wormald sitting on pies. It's a long story. If she were Chuck, she might have a problem with this because Jimmy violates the sanctity of the law. Not Kim, though. Her concerns are much more practical. You fabricated evidence? I made a video. Not exactly evidence. You used it to exonerate a client. You used falsified evidence to exonerate a client. Mm, I think you're splitting hairs. I'm not splitting hairs. What if... Davis and Maine find out you faked evidence. Later in the season, after Jimmy betrays his own brother Chuck by framing him for an error on important Mesa Verde documents, Kim never tells Jimmy that what he did was wrong. She instead just says that she does not want to discuss it, now or ever. But she does advise Jimmy to ensure he's covered all his tracks. Going against him, you'd really want to make sure you've got all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. She avoids discussing the details so she can maintain plausible deniability and ultimately helps Jimmy get away with it. Even in season five, when Kim learns Jimmy may become a friend of the cartel, she asks him if that's what he wants. She doesn't bring up the lives destroyed or literal murders committed by the organization. Her sense of morality is not a primary factor in the conversation, and it rarely is. When it comes to stepping outside the law, her concern is risk mitigation. And throughout the series, she takes bigger and bigger risks, putting her career on the line multiple times. With each success, she becomes emboldened to take things further. But why? What is she actually after? That question is part of what makes Kim so intriguing. For others on the show, it's not too hard a question to answer. Mike wants to provide for his family and atone for destroying his son. Jimmy wants to prove he's a wolf in a world of sheep. But Kim's motivation isn't as clear, not even to herself. In season two, she is asked the question point blank. At her interview with Schweikart and Coakley, Kim shares her background. She's from the Midwest, a tiny little town you've never heard of on the Kansas-Nebraska border. So what brought her to Albuquerque, where she worked her way up through the HHM mailroom? Well, one day, she looked at her life and the way she was going. Which way was that? Best case? Probably married to the guy that ran the town gas station. <laughs> Maybe cashiering down at the Hinky Dinky. The Hinky what? Hinky Dinky. It was our supermarket. <laughs> um, I just wanted something else. What did you want? More. That's what Kim wanted. More. And the problem with more is, there's always more of it. It is unattainable. Growing up with an alcoholic mother, outrunning landlords in the cold of night, Kim had to fend for herself. She built a strong muscle for self-sufficiency, which she proved by working up through the HHM mailroom to eventually lead the banking practice at Schweikart and Coakley. And what happens when someone with Kim's force of will chases the unattainable goal of more? We see it play out in earnest starting in season two. Jimmy airs a commercial for the Sandpiper class action lawsuit without getting approval. 
Howard blames Kim for not alerting them to it and sticks her in dock review as punishment. Jimmy concocts various schemes to save her, but Kim is steadfast. You don't save me. I save me. In one of Better Call Saul's classic montages set to a cover of Sinatra's My Way, Kim makes call after call until she finally lands a meeting with Mesa Verde. Then she fights like hell to convince Mesa Verde to follow her into solo practice and is ultimately successful, with some unrequested help from Jimmy. In season three, Kim puts everything she has into her new prestigious client, but eventually they ask for more. And of course, Kim abides. She takes on another case for a friend of Mesa Verde's CEO, Kevin Wachtel. Pushed to the limit and hardly sleeping, Kim passes out at the wheel, crashing her car. The unrelenting quest for more leads to its inevitable, nearly lethal consequences. Kim almost returns to work, but has a moment of self-reflection. Instead, she cancels her meetings and heads to Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster? Later, Jimmy finds her in the midst of a movie marathon, prepping for her second viewing of To Kill a Mockingbird. It was my favorite when I was a kid. I loved Atticus Finch. All the girls were in love with Gregory Peck. No, I wasn't in love with him. Well, a little, but no, I wanted to be him. Fight the good fight, change the world. Yeah, didn't you? That was more Chuck's thing. But, I mean, the good news is uh, you made it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I am. I'm changing the world by helping a mid-sized local bank become a mid-sized regional bank. Yay me. We're given another rare glimpse into Kim's past. She admired Atticus Finch, an idealistic lawyer who fought for victims of prejudice. And she assumes Jimmy felt the same way. She writes off her admiration of Atticus as normal childhood fantasy, similar to dreams of becoming an astronaut or famous athlete. However, Jimmy did not share this desire. It's not a fantasy, but a real value, which, after Kim's near-death experience, has returned to the fore. In season four, Kim returns to work without the same fervor she had before. This is especially evident when Kevin shows off Mesa Verde's expansion plans. Kim looks over the models of each bank, and Kevin lists off the locations where they'll go up. This is exactly the more she has been working towards. But her mind is elsewhere. After Kevin mentions North Platte, Nebraska, the score becomes unmistakably foreboding. Over here, North Platte, Nebraska. Now these two, you already know. This one's gonna be Ogden, Utah, and this one here is Tucumcari. And over here on this side, you got a few new ones. Sedona, Pueblo, Colorado. While Kevin espouses Mesa Verde's bright future, Kim's only thought is, what am I doing with my life? The glimpse at this monolithic future she's building, perhaps coupled with the mention of her home state of Nebraska, reminds Kim of the childhood ideals she abandoned. Seeing this physical representation of what her life's work is building towards reminds Kim that she is not Atticus Finch. So she makes a change. Kim joins Schweikart and Coakley as head of their banking practice, meaning her staff can handle Mesa Verde's day-to-day -day while she focuses on pro bono work. For a while, this seems to work. In fact, in one of Better Call Saul's best montages, seven months go by while Something Stupid plays over the split screen of Kim and Jimmy. And then I go and spoil by saying something stupid like I love you. 
but there's a problem. Kim values her pro bono work on behalf of the underserved. However, this motivation isn't totally pure. It's taken a step further in that she sees wealth and success, even her own, as something to be ashamed of. Mr. Acker proves this in season 5 when Kim explains why Mesa Verde can rightfully reclaim his land and he responds by calling her out. Have a good day. And I can see you. You're one of those people that uh, give a little money to charity every month so you can make up for all the bad that you've done. You go to a soup kitchen once a year on Thanksgiving. That makes you feel a whole lot better about yourself. Makes you feel like one of the best rich people. <laughs> oh, I don't know how in the world you sleep at night. Kim immediately goes on the offense, telling Acker to put on his big boy pants and face reality. Acker has clearly struck a nerve and spoken the truth, because when Kim is rightfully called out for something, her instinct is to aggressively fight back. We see this when Schweikart accuses her of colluding with Jimmy against Mesa Verde. Are you talking about malfeasance? Working against my client's interest, what? Please. Rich, tell me. You know I worked my ass off to get here. You know that. Yes, I do know. So tell me, please tell me why I would risk everything for some squatter. And we see it when Kim shames Kevin for trying to fire Schweikart and Coakley after Jimmy extorted him on Acker's behalf. Kevin, no matter what our relationship looks like moving forward, we owe you the truth. And the truth is, you ignored our advice. Well, so this is my fault. We said Mesa Verde should reconsider the site for the call center. You declined. We advise you to keep the purchase lot as an investment. You declined. And we advised you to leave that meeting when it became apparent that the other... When you tell Kim a truth she doesn't want to hear, she fights back. Just like she did when Acker called her out for trying to assuage the guilt she feels for her wealth and success. Her experience as someone who was left to fend for herself and her sympathy for others like her seems to have grown into resentment. Success is something to be ashamed of. And later in the season, for better or worse, Kim will leave Schweikart and Coakley to fully embrace pro bono work once again inspired by a brush with mortality. In season 5's Bagman, Jimmy nearly dies in the desert. Earlier, in seasons 3 and 4, we see how these reminders of mortality significantly alter Kim's path. After her car accident, she rededicated herself to pro bono work. We see something similar here. After Jimmy's return, Kim finds herself distracted at work. She looks at a letter from Diana Pender, one of her pro bono clients. In the letter, Diana thanks Kim for fighting for her when no one else would. The framed letter is a reminder of what Kim wants to dedicate her life to. After Jimmy's near-death experience, she is ready to do exactly that. So she leaves Swicard and Coakley to fully dedicate herself to pro bono work. As Kim leaves the office, she returns to grab something. Diana's letter is something she proudly displayed in her office, representing a part of herself she embraces. But tucked away, hidden in a drawer, is another part of herself, one that only sees the light of day occasionally. She retrieves the tequila stopper from a bottle of Zafiro Añejo, something Kim scored the first time we met Giselle. Bringing it with her tells us that Kim intends to integrate this part of herself into the new leaf she's turning. So, to understand who Kim is at the end of season 5, we need to talk about Giselle. 
Although we don't hear the name Giselle until season two's premiere, we are given a glimpse of her in season one. After Jimmy is ordered by a judge to take down his billboard, plagiarizing HHM's logo, he uses it to pull a publicity stunt. A worker fakes a fall and Jimmy comes to the rescue. Howard and others at HHM watch the stunt on TV with frustration. But just before the scene ends, Kim smiles. She is amused by his antics. This smile was our first peek at Giselle. Then in season two's premiere, Jimmy poses as Kim's brother while she takes on the moniker Giselle to swindle Ken for an expensive bottle of Zafiro Añejo. The experience thrills her. Kim is on such a high afterwards, she finally takes her relationship with Jimmy to the next level. For the first time, during the series at least, she sleeps with him. This first time we witnessed Kim join Jimmy in a con, it was surprising, partially because we thought of her as a rule follower. But as I pointed out earlier, the thing which holds her back is risk. If Kim isn't afraid of getting caught, nothing stands in the way. She essentially says exactly that in the following episode. After chiding Jimmy for fabricating evidence, exonerating Daniel Wormald, Jimmy calls out her hypocrisy. Why was it okay for her to break the rules with Ken, but not okay for Jimmy to break them for Daniel? She responds, That is so not the same thing. How? What's the difference? That had nothing to do with work. And we were just, just screwing around. This fabricating evidence. Jimmy, this could really hurt you. If they find out, if you get caught, they're never... The problem is getting caught. The problem is consequences. With Ken, she didn't see any. So Kim gave herself the green light, and she enjoyed it. So much so, she seems to cherish the Zafiro Añejo stopper as an important memento. In fact, in his interview with Fandom, the showrunner Peter Gould gave this hint about the final season. If I were going to tease something, I would say keep your eye on the stopper. Remember, there's a stopper? Jimmy and Kim open a bottle of Zafiro Añejo, and that stopper? We're not finished with that stopper. I will say that. So it seems the stopper will be important in defining Kim. Her grabbing it after quitting Schweikart and Coakley is significant. But what about the experience was so exhilarating to Kim? In the next few seasons, it becomes clearer and clearer that Kim resents success. Ken is a walking stereotype of the obnoxious rich person. Punishing him means lashing out against the personification of wealth. Kim has spent over a decade working in the system, pursuing something she's ultimately ashamed of. Here, Jimmy gives her a chance to briefly break free and lash out against it. It's no wonder the experience is so exhilarating, and it's no wonder she's so drawn to Jimmy afterwards. The experience draws her back in over and over, like an addictive drug. Later in the season, she finds another mark and invites Jimmy to join her. The two con the man into writing a $10,000 check to Ice Station Zebra Associates. The experience once again triggers a passionate night with Jimmy McGill, bringing the two together after a few episodes of Kim giving him the cold shoulder. She was distant with him after he got her in trouble with the Sandpiper commercial, but their latest con smoothed things over. This pattern repeats in season four. Once again, Jimmy and Kim, after growing distant, are brought together by a con. They have their classic Something Stupid montage, where Kim happily balances pro bono work in Mesa Verde. Without scheming or grifting, the spark of their relationship, the two grow distant. In a clever use of split screen, we see that even when they are in the same room, or even the same bed, the rift between them remains. If there's any mystery over why they grow apart, 
The problem becomes clear in the first sequence of Jimmy and Kim together after the montage. Kim brings Jimmy to a party at Schweikart and Coakley. While there, as if to better understand the person Kim is becoming, Jimmy sneaks into her office. He finds the letter from Diana Pender, an important symbol for who Kim strives to be. Someone who helps the helpless. Someone who, as we learned from the previous few months, does not have room for Jimmy in her life. But if he had snooped in a certain drawer, he would have found the tequila stopper, the part of herself she keeps hidden, the part which gravitates to Jimmy. Instead, insecure about their relationship, Jimmy returns to the party, makes a scene, and embarrasses Kim. They don't come back together until Kim relapses. Huell assaults a police officer with a bag of sandwiches. Kim reluctantly agrees to help Jimmy free Huell of any jail time. She hatches a fake letter-writing campaign to paint Huell as a hero. Once the prosecutor agrees to let Huell go, Kim gets that hit of dopamine that follows every successful grift. Then, the spark is back. Kim goes right from the prosecutor to Jimmy's arms. As with many addictions, Kim needs to up the dose over time to get the same high. In season two, the stakes were low and she could justify their antics by saying they were just screwing around, and it had nothing to do with work. That's no longer true. She's upped the dose by ramping up the risk, putting her career on the line. If she and Jimmy were caught fabricating the community of people fighting for Huel, she could lose her license. Jimmy, the enabler, gives Kim a hit of her favorite drug and ends her sobriety. Back in her office, Kim frees the tequila stopper from its drawer. She remembers the part of herself that's been dormant for months. She visits Jimmy and he expects to get chewed out for pulling her into the Huel fiasco. But instead, she says... Let's do it again. Here, we see an important difference between Jimmy and Kim. Although they both share appreciation for a good con, their relationship with the practice differs. Jimmy will sometimes indulge it just for thrills, but generally he uses it for practical reasons. For him, grifting is a tool to further his career, build wealth, or get closer with Kim. Rarely have we seen him grift just for the pleasure of it. Perhaps we saw it with Marco in season one, but even then it was at least in part just a way for Jimmy to indulge in his and Marco's friendship one more time. For Jimmy, grifting is a way of life. For Kim, it's a drug. It's thrill-seeking. This is Kim's fatal flaw. Without it, the spark which finally started the true relationship between her and Jimmy would not be there. She would not be in the crosshairs of a maniacal drug dealer, and she wouldn't be plotting to destroy a man's career. When it comes to the con which freed Huel, you could argue that Jimmy and Kim were backed into a corner. They had to use creative tactics to free him from jail time. For their next con, this pretense is essentially gone. Mesa Verde wants to alter plans for a branch that have already been submitted for approval to Lubbock, Texas. Kevin asks Kim if it can be done, and she says no, explaining that it would delay the expansion. Wachtel accepts her answer, and she is under no pressure to make it happen. Further, she is now more focused on her pro bono work, often neglecting Mesa Verde. So, personally, she's not out to impress them, but altering plans that have already been submitted is the perfect excuse for another grift. She fakes a leg injury while Jimmy plays the role of her brother and negligent babysitter. Working together, they manage to trick Shirley into letting Kim switch the expansion plan out for an updated version. 
The whole experience excites Jimmy. He thinks she's like him, ready to embrace a life of conning to help people get their way outside the norms of the justice system. But Kim explains, I think we should only use our powers for good. What are we considering good as of 9 or 6 p.m. tonight? You know what? It's like Potter Stewart said. We'll know it when we see it. We just drove 300 miles to scam Lubbock, Texas, so that your client can have a 13% bigger bank branch. Don't get me wrong, I loved every second of it, but how was that using our powers for good? She doesn't have an answer for Jimmy because she knows he's right. She's rationalizing an experience that was pure indulgence. With each con, two important things happen. One, Kim gets a drug-like high. Two, she gets bolder. Earlier, we pointed out that when it comes to slipping Jimmy antics, it's not morals that hold Kim back. It's risk management or fear of getting into trouble. With each success, she becomes more confident in her ability to pull it off. Her desire grows, and so does her risk tolerance. In Season 5, Kim enacts a bolder plan to go after Kevin himself and help Mr. Acker keep his land, though this was also spurred on by Kim seeing Acker as a victim, which pulls on her Atticus Finch ideals. Ultimately, she gets cold feet and tries to call it off with Jimmy. He agrees, but then, in front of everyone, moves forward with their blackmail plan. Stop. Stop it! I'm Saul Goodman! Echoing season two, when Jimmy put out the Sandpiper commercial without permission, he betrays Kim's trust. That night, Kim returns home rightfully furious with Jimmy. He braces himself for a breakup, but as always, Kim surprises us. Instead, she says, Or maybe... Maybe we get married? It's not hard to see why Kim is drawn to Jimmy. They bonded in the mailroom over a similar sense of humor and shared interests, including classic films and, of course, law. Also, they have their shared love of grifting. What is hard to see is why Kim stays with Jimmy after he betrays her trust time and time again. Why is she so insistent on making things work out between them? In the same episode that Kim suggests marriage, we get a rare glimpse into her past. The cold open of the episode is a flashback to Kim as a child. Her mother is late picking Kim up after school. She's been drinking and Kim knows it. So Kim refuses to get in the car and instead walks home three miles with a cello. The decision to include this in the same episode as the proposal is no mere coincidence. It should tell us something that helps us understand Kim's shocking decision. On the Better Call Saul Insider podcast, writer Tom Schnauz suggested that Kim may regret taking a hard line with her mother. Something in the, her relationship with her mother and the way they went at each other Again, helping inform what happens at the end when she says maybe we should get married. Maybe being hardline was not the way to go. Maybe being hardline with her mom caused some unrepairable rift and maybe she finds another way to go with Jimmy. Her walking away in the flashback may have been one instance of a greater pattern, one which ultimately ended in Kim severing the relationship with her entirely. If Kim regrets this, she may now want to try a different approach protecting her important relationships at all costs. In this case, the one with Jimmy. Although he has crossed the line multiple times, it will take a lot to push Kim over the edge. She won't lose him the way she lost her mother.
Later in the season, Kim's decision to stay with Jimmy nearly costs her her life. Lalo shows up at their apartment to question Jimmy over what happened in the desert. He pleads with Lalo to let Kim go to no avail. Ultimately, it's Kim who stands up to Lalo. Kim lies for Jimmy, just like she did to free Huel and swap Mesa Verde's branch plans. Except this time, it isn't her career on the line, but their lives. Bigger stakes means a higher high and a larger leap in confidence. She saved them, and now confidence becomes hubris, which leads to recklessness. That's how we get to Howard Hamlin. He commits multiple sins which make him Kim Wexler's perfect target. He's successful and wealthy, but he runs a scholarship fund, which checks Acker's, hey, I'm rich, but I give to charity every once in a while, box. He represents the person Kim resents, the person she nearly became herself. Further, he suggests that Jimmy is the reason she quit. As someone who dedicated decades of her life to pulling herself out of nothing and taking control, Kim is offended. Do you have any idea how insulting that is? I make my own decisions, for my own reasons. You gotta listen to me. Howard insults Kim by questioning her agency. He is the personification of the rigid system of success Kim rails against. He's the perfect mark. Going after him is of course risky, but especially after Lalo, Kim has no doubt in her abilities. And who knows if we could pull it off. <laughs> okay. Further, by tearing down Howard and forcing Davis and Maine to settle Sandpiper, she gets enough money to open a pro bono practice and become her version of Atticus Finch, something she cares about deeply ever since her car accident and Jimmy's bagman fiasco. Jimmy can't believe she's serious about any of this. Kim doing this? It's not you. Okay, you would not be okay with it. Not in the cold light of day. Wouldn't I? He still thinks it's morals that hold her back. He doesn't realize that it's been fear the entire time. Something this new Kim doesn't have. Over Better Call Saul's five seasons, Kim has learned what she truly wants. And is emboldened enough to finally take it. So now that season six is over, we do know what ends up happening to Kim. She ends up paying a sort of penance and coming clean with everything that she's ever done with Howard, with Chuck, with Howard's wife, and also found a little bit of herself again after paying some penance and sharing one last cigarette with Jimmy McGill. There's a lot of excitement about Ray Seahorn because she finally earned an Emmy nomination last month, and actually she got two for other work that she's done on a different series, Cooper's Bar. That's a really good year for her. I hope she gets it.